just want to encourage us each week as we hear the reading of the word, and I know Ed says each week, whatever is best for you, whether it's to read or to hear, and I would affirm that completely. And I've, I've, come, to, I've come personally to really just enjoy just, just listening to the word audibly read and spoken to me. Um, and I, I hope that we as a church engage in each activity and each ingredient of this service of worship so purposefully and joyfully and actively each week that it's not just a, it's not just a, a, a ritual that we engage in, but truly something that we devote our hearts to. Um, well, this morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5. This, this sermon has gone in a direction that I, I didn't expect, but an exciting direction for me, and also a, certainly a very challenging direction. I know that we need the Spirit of God each week to give us understanding of his word, but I've sensed that and, and just felt that even more for this, for this message. So just praying that God will do that. Um, I need to set this up. We're not preaching through Ephesians, obviously, so that would have helped, but So I've got to set this up a little bit, and it's not a necessary evil. There'll be edifying value just in the setup. Um, But it will help us further on, especially as we come to the conclusion. So as Christians who have been loved by God, who have been redeemed by God, we are to watch carefully how we walk. And of course, the walk of a Christian sums up every aspect of your life, Every part of your day, from the, be- from the beginning to the end, um, that's the walk of the Christian. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, we're to watch carefully how we walk, that we shouldn't walk as unwise people, but as wise. And the f- expression he uses is buying up the time because the days are evil. We shouldn't be foolish, he says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that word for understand is going to be so key for us this morning. Again, we'll come back to it at the end. The word for understand points to a spiritual insight. It's, it points to a spiritual perception. So the point isn't just a factual knowledge of what God's will. I know, I know God's will for me today is to do this, but I don't want to, or okay, I will. The word for understand points to a spiritual perception of the beauty and the goodness of his will. It's not just knowing what it is, it's seeing how good it is. The word points to a spiritual insight into how I should be daily working out this will of God for me in my life. Because obviously God's word doesn't cover every detail of your life, does it? It gives you the basic parameters of God's will for you, but then the working out of that will is what each one of us is called to in our daily lives, in our walk. This means, to, to help maybe give an example of this, it is impossible for any unbeliever to understand the Lord's will. If you're an unbeliever, you cannot understand God's will. It's impossible. Now, you can know that it's God's will I don't kill someone, or, or I don't steal, or I don't commit adultery. You can know that, but you cannot understand it as a Christian does and can. Only the Christian who's born from above has an understanding of God's will. 
So this, this understanding, this spiritual insight, this perception is something that you cannot impart to me and I cannot impart it to you. Now that might sound a little strange because you might say, isn't that what I come here for is for you to impart to me this understanding of God's will at some level? And I say, no, I cannot impart this to you. It's not a formula that can be learned or mastered through teaching or through study. It's, it's on each one of us. So it's, it's not a formula. It's a, instead, it's a gift from God that is developed experientially. Now, there's ways that I avoid the word experiential, but here uh, we don't. This understanding of God's will is developed experientially, that's subjective, as we seek always to conduct ourselves in a way, in a manner that is worthy. Worthy of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. All of your life can be lived in a way that's worthy of that gospel. Every aspect of your day can be, can be evaluated in that light. And it's that work of evaluation that we are called to moment by moment. The moral will of God for the daily living of my life is revealed always in and through the revelation of his gracious saving will for me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So question then, are you foolish? Or are you buying up the time? The Bible speaks in polarities, right? Are we growing each day in our understanding experientially of what the will of the Lord is? Now, That's setting us up. Now, really remember that because it's big. It's really big for what's coming. Paul continues in verse 18 saying that instead of getting drunk with wine, we we should be filled in the Spirit. Now, a lot of your translations say filled with the Spirit. There's a word for that, and the Greek doesn't use it. Paul doesn't use it. He says filled in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the larger context of Ephesians, I believe he's just saying filled with When you're filled in the Spirit, it means you're filled with all the fullness of God. He uses that expression a couple of times. In Christ Jesus, and he uses that expression repeatedly, through the Spirit. So when we're filled in the Spirit, it's like the Trinity, it's like the triune God is is filling us. Right. We're filled with all the fullness of God in Christ Jesus through the Spirit. And when we're filled in the Spirit, then we'll understand the Father's gracious, saving will for me. I'll get it. I'll get it. In Christ. And this should overflow in praise and thanksgiving. That's why Paul continues on. So understand the will of the Lord. Be filled in the Spirit. And then he says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs that are spiritual. Singing and psalmodizing in your heart to the Lord. So there's the ings again. Giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even to the Father. So that's the moral will of God for you. And then Paul adds to that list of ings, speaking, singing, psalmonizing, giving thanks, a fourth ing, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. So those first three ings, 
they were all related. They all kind of went together, praise and thanksgiving, singing, psalmodizing, giving thanks, uh, all of that. But now this last ing being subject takes us in a really different direction, doesn't it? We've kind of, we're going this way and like, let's go over here. That's kind of what we feel like as we're reading along. Where does this being subject come from? What is going on here? It, it sets the stage, in fact, for the next 21 uh, verses, in which we, some of which we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. So the important thing to see here, and this is why I was setting us up with this, please see this. That this subjecting ourselves to one another, and but let me just get this out of the way first. Um, there's just a lot of churches that say that, that um, or a lot of maybe theologians or scholars or commentators, that talk about the fact that, well, we're supposed to subject ourselves to one another. And so it's a mutual thing that's always going on in the body of Christ. But what we need to, again, picture here is that Paul's writing to a church, and they've all gathered on the Lord's Day, and they're, they're reading this letter. And there's slaves in the room, and there's masters in the room, and there's husbands, and there's wives, and there's parents, and there's children. And so when Paul writes to this group of Christians, he says, be subject, or subject yourselves to one another. And he knows that all of these different relationships are represented in this group. And then it's interesting that he does not repeat the verb. He does not say subjecting, uh, being subject to one another, and then say, wives, subject yourselves to your husbands. He doesn't repeat the verb, subject yourselves. He says, wives to your husbands. In other words, this is what he's talking about. So he's not saying, husbands, subject yourselves to your wives. And what's often talked about there is that husbands, they kind of subject themselves to their wives by loving their wives. And so as I love my wife, I am a servant to her, and so I'm subjecting myself to her. Um, Same way you could say that fathers should subject themselves to their children. Because as fathers are serving their children in their role as a father and, and doing sacrificially loving them and all that, that they're subjecting themselves to their children. Right? That masters should be subjecting themselves to their slaves. I hope you can hear that it just doesn't work. Now, the, the, the pattern is true. What I'm talking about is true. I, I should be serving my wife. Masters should be understanding of their slaves in the context of Paul's day. In the same way for uh, parents and children. But Paul introduces this. It's not a mutual submission. There, there's no such thing. That's impossible. It doesn't work. And, and he goes on to explain that in the coming verses. So having said that, and hopefully got that out of the way, and you ask more questions about that later if you'd like, the important thing to see here is that subjecting ourselves to one another, to the God-ordained authorities in our lives, masters, parents, husbands, is one of the supernatural, and it is indeed a supernatural, fruit. Therefore, one of the signs that I am filled in the Spirit. It's one of the ways that we live out experientially my growing understanding. Okay. The spiritual insight, the spiritual perception that I have been given into the will of God and to his gracious saving will. 
So you, you see subjection in that light. It is, it is a fruit of being filled in the Spirit, and it's one of the ways, subjection is one of the ways that I'm living out experientially my growing understanding and my insight into the gracious, saving will of God. That's what it is. But what does subjection have to do with God's gracious, saving will? And the answer is found in those simple and yet wonderfully loaded words be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, we know that there's only one fear that is righteous and good and life-giving. All other fears are destructive and death-giving. But the one fear that's life-giving is the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. So what is the fear of the Lord? Let's just look at it for a moment from the Old Testament. The fear of Yahweh is, first of all, in your handout, a trembling before him, whether it's a trembling in your soul, or sometimes that trembling in the soul could perhaps spill over into the trembling of our, of our bodies, but it is a trembling before him as the one who is, I'm just saying, the omnipotent creator and sustainer of the universe the righteous lawgiver and judge of all the earth. So as we read these next few verses, I chose them because they all use different Hebrew words. So the Hebrew is full of this diverse vocabulary for fear and dread and trembling. And we see tons of them used here in these verses. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. I know, O Yahweh, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. My flesh bristles. It's the idea of goosebumps of fear, or it stands on end for dread of you. We think of uh, Jacob speaking of his father's God, and he spoke of the dread of Isaac. Now, again, we'll have to understand this dread rightly. But then he continues and he says, And I fear your judgments, Jeremiah 5. Now hear this, O people, who are simple-minded fools, and without a heart of wisdom. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea. Seriously, that's what, that's what this God did. And you don't tremble before him. A perpetual statute, so it cannot cross over. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. Then everyone who trembled, again, all, the, all these are different Hebrew words. Then everyone who trembled, and, and by the way, the cross references you have next to the reference in your handouts, Those references show how the word is used for a trembling with fear, not of God, but of other things or people. So these words are all used in another way as well. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me. Psalm 99 says, Yahweh reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth tremble. Quake. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake Yahweh your God and the dread of me 
is not in you, declares Lord Yahweh of hosts. Well, you say, we don't say I trust, but some might say, well, that's the Old Testament. We've got a different God in the New Testament. We know that's, that is not true. But just, just to be sure, here we are in Philippians 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn. Now, I read all those verses not to, not to just like beat, beat us over the head, right? But I really need all those verses to sink into us. Did you get the feel of it? Is it are, you, are you swimming in the water of this, as it were? Because it's going to be important as we move ahead. The fear of Yahweh is, first of all, it is a, a trembling before him. Simply because of who he is. He is the creator, sustainer of the universe, the righteous lawgiver and judge of all the earth. But it is more than that. The fear of Yahweh is a trembling before him such that the result of that trembling is that it causes us, as the sinful creatures we are, to cling. To his promises. And to obey his commands. Trembling can lead you to two different results. In almost all cases, other than the fear of Yahweh, it leads you to run, to flee, to hide, to despair. In the case of the trembling before Yahweh, the true fear of Yahweh causes us then to cling. To flee not from him, but to flee to him. We don't simply kind of right, saunter up to God or come, well, I feel like it and I feel all good about it. We, when we come to God, especially in, in salvation, we are fleeing. We are fleeing to him. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, to this one, and the other, I don't know if I said it, to obey, of course you got that, obey his commands. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Look, that's one to whom he will look in favor. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. Another Hebrew word again. All sorts of different Hebrew words. It's like every one they enlist in this. And he shall be your cause of trembling and dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. That, that's just like, our mind's kind of like, but that's not just us today. The Hebrews had the same trouble, right? Everything else they were afraid of, that they were afraid of it for a reason. It was not a sanctuary. It was a threat. Well, God is a threat, but then he's our sanctuary. Not only is, even if he wasn't a threat, he is simply God. And we are creatures. Deuteronomy 5, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments all the days that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. And then coming again to the New Testament, therefore having these promises, beloved, promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. That's obedience, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
What is the fear of God? It's a trembling before him as the one who is the creator, sustainer of the universe, the lawgiver, and the judge of all the earth, such that it causes us as the sinful creatures that you are, that I am, that we are, to cling to his promises. It's that trembling that drives me to him to cling tightly to his promises and to obey his commands. Now, since we struggle with the word fear, given negative connotations of something servile and slavish, there are many who would speak today instead of reverence for God. Um, and I'm not going to, I won't hold anything back now. I just think that's terrible. I think it's terrible. I'm not saying the people who do it are terrible. <laughs> I just think that idea is terrible. It just messes with the beauty of what we have here. And I ask you, can you not see, in light of all the verses we've read of what fear is, does reverence cut it? Read in a, in a, in a theological word book that I have that I, in my library, it says, fearing God refers to an awe or reverence toward God. To fear Yahweh means to serve and be faithful to him. That's one you always have to be careful. I mean, be careful as you listen to me, as you listen to anyone who preaches up here. You need to evaluate everything carefully by the word. And I would ask you if you can see the problem here, because this definition actually empties this foundational biblical concept. The fear of God is not something peripheral, right? This is like foundational. And it empties it of its true power. What is reverence? Well, I looked it up. Reverence is a feeling of deep respect or admiration for someone or something. It is a feeling of or attitude of deep respect tinged with awe. It utterly fails to convey that sense of a trembling before God, a trembling as creatures before an omnipotent creator and judge. Many of those who would substitute reverence for fear are concerned, and I I, I understand this, and this is where I I need to be careful, because they're concerned that fear is going to communicate something unbiblical. Like you should fear God, and then that's servile, servile and slavish, right? But I wonder, I do wonder, how often there is also just an underlying failure on all of our parts to truly grasp who God is. Who of us have, have done that? And therefore, to grasp the fear that is in your handout, do him. Are we withholding from God his due? Will the one who has truly learned to tremble, if I have learned to tremble... Will I hesitate to speak of the fear of Yahweh? But what about the concern of communicating the idea of being, well, we don't want people to be terrorized by God, so they only think of running away from him, do we? Of course not. Do we want people to be so afraid of God that they cannot be secure in his love? Of course not. But the answer to the question is simple. You just got to remember who it is you're fearing. Yes, if I fear one of you, like, like in a bad way, I, I, I'm not going to run to you. I'm going to run away from you. But who does it we fear is all the difference in the world. 
It invests it with its fuller meaning in your handout, who it is it's feared, and so also by the virtue of the presence of faith. This is not just the fear of the God who is creator and lawgiver and judge. This is also the fear of the God, brothers and sisters, whose name is Yahweh, whose name is Jesus, who is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, who is merciful and gracious and forgiving, and therefore the one in whom we have trusted. So, the psalmist writes, okay, I'll read this, go on and read these verses. Psalm 130, if you should keep iniquities... Or store up iniquities, our iniquities. Oh, Yah, oh, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared rightly. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have worked for those who take refuge in you. And, and why are we taking refuge? Because we were trembling, right? And because we do tremble. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness. So we can put it like this. The fear of the Lord is that which causes us daily to flee to him and find in him our only refuge. And let's turn it then in turn When we find in the Lord our only refuge, when we have come to him and found in him our only refuge, that causes us in turn all the more to fear and to tremble before only him. So that we flee to him. So that we tremble and fear. So that we flee to him. So that we tremble and fear. He's the only refuge. I just want to again say the Hebrew and Greek speaking Jews, they... This is not one of those cases where we have a, a Hebrew word that's untranslatable in English. You know, sometimes there's a Hebrew word, it's like, well, I just can't quite capture that word in English. Like the word for steadfast love or loving kindness, chesed. That, that word you could write a paragraph on. There's no really English word for it. The word for fear has an English word. This, word, this Hebrew word has an English word for it. It's the word fear. And... and all of their words for fear and dread and trembling. They did and they could and they did often refer to a servile and slavish fear, a terror, a a running away. Their words for fear and dread and trembling did not mean something different from our English word for fear and dread and trembling. So therefore, what should we do with this? The problem is in us. It's not in the words. The problem is in us. Rather than explaining that the fear of God actually means a reverential awe for God, we ought to be emphasizing who it is that we fear and tremble before. The God who is omnipotent, creator, righteous lawgiver and judge, so that we fear him supremely and the one who has savingly, mercifully revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we flee to him joyfully. When we do this, not only then will the fear of God make perfect sense, perfect sense not as in an unbeliever could get it. No, I'm talking about the perfect sense that only a believer can get. 
but it will be invested with redemptive and life-giving meaning. Put it like this. And think about this, because I think this is important. The love of God, apart from the fear of God, and a trembling before him, and a real trembling before him, is an insipid love. The word just does it. It is an insipid love. It lacks power. It lacks vitality. It lacks life. It lacks reality. It lacks... It cannot be the true biblical love of God. On the other hand, the fear of God, apart from the love of God, and a delight in his promises and his commands, is an insipid fear. It cannot be the true biblical fear of God. And the reality is then that as sinful, uh, finite creatures that we are, fear is innate to us. If you don't fear something, you're right, we're fools. We're always going to fear someone or something, but the beauty of the fear of the Lord is that this supreme fear is the antidote in your handout to all other fears. It, it just eliminates all others. When we have learned to tremble before Yahweh, all other fears are driven away. Isaiah chapter 2, In that day men will go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the dread of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you, who are you that you should fear man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? And then in the New Testament, Jesus says, But I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If I could add, not to Jesus' words, but as an explanation, In this way you will be saved and delivered from all other fears, the fear of man. The constant emphasis in scripture is that fear is owed to God. Now, did you see all that? Now, we've been building up, maybe without even realizing it, we've been immersed in this world of the fear of God. And you begin to to grasp with the understanding that you are given as Christians what this is. Now, The emphasis throughout all of scripture is that this fear is owed to God and to God alone. The fear of God is the key to living in true subjection to him. If I don't have the fear of God, I'm not going to be in true subjection to him. So now it is significant in light of all the above that Paul writes here in Ephesians. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. We might have expected be subject to God in the fear of him. Fear the Lord and be subject to him. But what does Paul say? Be subject to one another. Husbands, masters, parents in the fear of Christ. I just want to ask a question. This is really hitting me. I I started to see why people in our day don't want any authorities in their lives. Why we're why we're defunding right the police and all this. I, it kind of started to make sense to me. I started to think like a person who doesn't have 
the, the scriptures, or even just we're, we're turning our back on the common grace that, that the Lord has given. How can another human being, I ask you, another human being, even a parent, even a husband, have authority over me? How can that be? Something's wrong there. Something inside us says that can't be right. Right? Because isn't, I'm a human being too. I mean, I'm not an animal. I can see you could have authority over an animal. Over me? Isn't this really, ultimately, just an illegitimate form of slavery? How can Paul say that I am to be subject to any human authority? And the answer is, and we have to be careful here. I think we're going to see something that we maybe don't usually see. The answer is that all true human authority is derived from and granted by God as the manifestation of his own ultimate authority. When you hear the word authority, really, there's only one that has authority. It's God. All authority is his. All authority belongs to him. There is no authority anywhere else at a certain level. But then God has, in his authority, manifested and manifests his authority as it's represented in humans. The point here, then, is not a moral likeness, because this is where our minds might go. That the way humans exercise their derived authority uh, mirrors the way God exercises his ultimate authority. So, look, my authority, I'm I'm exercising my authority just like God does his, in, in kind of the same way. Well, that would immediately invalidate all human authority. Because no human has ever mirrored perfectly the exercise of God's authority. So this is not a moral likeness of God's authority. Again, the point is not a moral likeness such that, as a human authority, I can only expect obedience to divine laws. Like God said, I'm the authority, and now I'm going to put authorities on earth to make sure that my divine laws are followed. In that case, a parent could not tell his child to set the table and expect his child to obey. Now, he could tell him to set the table and expect his child to obey because the Bible says obey your parents. Right? But now the parent is requiring something that's not a divine law. Set the table. What if the child doesn't want to? Right. If this was a moral likeness such that you can only expect obedience to divine laws, that would immediately invalidate all human authority. So what are we saying? This is maybe the most important. The point here is that the mere presence of authority in and of itself, even the authority of a sinful husband or a sinful father or a sinful master. And by the way, I'm not going here to the cases of where we should disobey our authorities because they're, they're either abusive, or I need to get out, or, or because they're requiring something unbiblical. Paul doesn't go there either, so I'm not going there right now. But the Bible does go there. But that's for another time and so often as I was talking with Lance the other day we jump to that because we because we're afraid to see beauty in the other side and so all we want to do is spend our time with the qualifications instead of the supernatural work that God does in us to help us understand so the point here is that the mere presence of authority in and of itself the authority of a sinful husband father or master is a manifestation of the reality of that ultimate authority of God from which all human authority derives. If that wasn't the case, 
then it would be the case that every human authority, no matter how well-intentioned or how loving or how faithful, could only be a usurping of the authority of God. But since this is the case, since every human authority, regardless of how well-intentioned it may be or may not be, maybe it's not a very faithful authority, it is still, by definition, a derivative manifestation of that ultimate authority of God. And this is why Paul can say, now listen to his words here, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The point, the point here, this is, this is hard for us to get, and I've been praying much because we are influenced by our culture. We may, we may talk and bemoan all that our culture around us is doing and how they're treating authority, but brothers and sisters, this, this has infected us. It's infected families. It's infected all of us. The point here isn't just that if we fear Christ, then we'll obey all his commands. And one of his commands is that we be subject to human authorities. That's not the point. That's not the point. Paul's point is that subjection to the authority of other human beings is uniquely and necessarily the way that we acknowledge the ultimate authority of God. We are to see the human authorities in our lives representing in their own persons the authority of God. So that, and again, I don't want us to get distracted here because some of us might be thinking, start thinking of, well, what is the American constitutional authority? Is the Constitution my authority? Is the president? What if it's not unconstitutional? So let's just stick here with the family authorities that Paul talks about. Masters, husbands, fathers, and mothers. Okay. We're to see the human authorities in our lives representing in their own persons the authority of God so that our subjection to these human authorities is uniquely and necessarily the expression of that fear and trembling that we owe to God himself. Did you, did you see that? That, that. I think that's the sign we've all been infected by our culture. Because I think if we hear that rightly, and if that's actually biblical, I mean, again, don't take my word for it, but if I'm expressing biblically what we have, then we're all in trouble. All of us. This is why Paul can go on to say, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord and because your hus- not because your husbands are as perfect as the Lord or as loving as the Lord, but because of the simple fact of their headship and authority which itself derives from the simple fact of the headship and the authority of Christ, which is a, a reality. Notice how in the following three verses, so what, what, we're, what we're trying to do here is help us to see subjection to human authorities in a beautiful, God-honoring gospel context. Notice how in the following three verses, the one that we fear is not explicitly identified. So you put your own detective hats on and see what you think. Titus's affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all. Now, who, who were they obeying? Well, they were obeying Titus and the Apostle Paul, and through them, of course, Christ. 
as one, um, how you received him, Titus, with fear and trembling. The picture then seems to be of a fear and trembling before Titus. They received him with fear and trembling, but as one representing in his person the authority of God. Ephesians 6. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh. Whatever Paul thought of the institution of slavery, whatever Paul thought of that, and we could, we could talk about the differences between different kinds of slavery at different times in history, but whatever Paul thought of that slavery at that time, and it was a slavery, um, he says to the slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ. Again, the picture seems to be a fear and trembling before masters. Be obedient to those who are your masters, and hopefully they're Christian masters, because they're in the same room with you, worshiping and hearing this letter read. With fear and trembling, as those representing in their own persons the authority of Christ. When, mas- sla- when slaves looked at their master, they saw authority. And when they see authority, what do they think? Ah, authority of God. Because that's, that's the only true authority that there really is. And so. There's this fear and trembling. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are unreasonable. And here again, this picture is the same. So would it be going too far to say then that slaves are to fear their masters? Now, I'm just saying something now that without all of our context, we'd be like, what? But is that going too far? Is it too far to say, children, fear your parents? Is it too far to say, wives, fear your husbands? Or perhaps, if we don't say that, we're really pulling the rug right out from underneath all those who are called to subject themselves. Romans chapter 13, verse 7. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. As far as I can tell, there are only four places in the entire Bible, maybe I missed one, I don't know, but I've only kind of find four, where the fear of another human being is acknowledged as a good thing, even commanded. That's what makes Paul's language here, the fact that it only happens four times, that's what makes Paul's use of this language so powerfully provocative. And it is what makes the translation of the ESV and the NIV so inadequate and even misleading. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect. That's not what it says. Honor to whom honor. And I understand semantic ranges of words, and, uh, but it's not what it says, and that's not in the semantic range. The simple fact of the matter is that respect is not a faithful translation of the Greek word for fear. Now, the immediate context of verse 7, as well as verses 1 to 7, tells us that this fear is due specifically to those in authority over us. We see the same thing in Joshua chapter 3. Yahweh said to Joshua, This day 
when the waters of the Jordan are cut off, now watch the language, I will begin to magnify you, exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. On that day, Yahweh magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they feared him, just as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. What are we to make of the versions which translate, they respected him just as they had respected Moses, and there's very few who do it here. We can see from the context how far short that falls. The people feared Moses and Joshua. The people stood in fear of Joshua and Moses. They trembled before them as divinely ordained authorities representing in their own persons as those appointed by God, the authority of God. So we read in Leviticus chapter 19, every one of you shall fear his mother and his father. I am Yahweh, your God. Look how he follows it up with that. Here again we see that the fear of one's parents is shorthand for the fear of God. Because it is the ultimate authority of God. There is no authority apart from God, outside of God. There's no such thing as true authority that doesn't in some way represent his. And that is represented here in the authority of one's parents. Finally, we read in verse 33 of Ephesians chapter 5. The wife must see to it that she fears her husband. Now, Paul could have said, the wife must see to it that she honors her husband. And part of me feels like at this point, I think I'm not, I mean... so impacted by our culture, right? Part of me feels like I've got to defend myself and say, my wife is not afraid of me. We have a great time every day, you know. Um, so, but, but I, and we've talked about it. I mean, I think we're on the same page. We, we, we just enjoy, we, I, we have a great marriage. <laughs> like, how could I? But I think part of the reason, actually, brothers and sisters, part of the reason is because we're working to see the beauty of this. That's why. Now, there can be good marriages apart from this, but, but not good in the sense of really, really, biblically, beautifully, wonderfully good. That's not possible. So Paul could have said, the wife must see to it that she honors her husband. He did not say that. That's the word, Greek word, tamao. He could have said, the wife must see to it that she shows deference to her husband, which would be more like the word respect. He did not use that word, show de- the wife must see to it that she shows deference to her husband. He had other words he could use. Instead, he says boldly, and I might point out, he says unapologetically. So we need to stop apologizing. We need to stop being afraid. He says the wife must see to it that she fears her husband. Now that's no servile or slavish fear. Paul is linking us back to verse 21, where, if you have the right, a good translation of that verse, because some translations, like again the ESV, says, be subject to one another in, out of reverence for Christ. That really just messes it all up. I, I, now our translations are reliable and good, so you don't have to doubt everything you read, but this honestly, 
It frustrates me that we say out of reverence for Christ when it should say in the fear of Christ, NASB or the LSB here. So he's linking us back to verse 21, which we will not see the link unless we see fear here and fear there, where Paul said that we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The wife's fear of her husband is shorthand for her fear of God. Not because of any superior qualities or godlikeness in her husband. Now, there is a godlikeness in terms of the, purely in terms of the authority aspect. But because it is the ultimate authority of God that's represented in the authority of her husband. What are we to make then of the fact that almost all, this is the one place, if you read other translations, there's, there's always a number of them that will break the trend and they'll say fear and all of that. But almost all, barring the KJV, King James, and the American Standard Version, they translate, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, what's the problem with that translation? Not only is it wrong, but there's another problem. It, trans- it focuses all of the attention horizontally on the husband exclusively. And that deals out death to the wife. It takes away all her empowerment to actually be subject to her husband. Because it focuses all the attention horizontally on the husband exclusively. The Bible never says, respect God. That is totally inadequate. That is, we do not talk that way. It focuses the attention horizontally rather than vertically on God via the husband. Not via the husband as a priest. We'll see that in a week or two. Not via the husband as a priest or a go-between between the wife and God. But no, the husband is simply one representing in his, as the authority he has, the authority of God. And so Paul is directing the wife's uh, a gaze vertically on God via her husband who is horizontally <laughs> to her in, in, the, in that ultimate sense. And so this translation of respect in the attempt to make the wife's subjection to her husband more palatable, which I believe that is at least part of the motivation to make it more palatable, less offensive, it actually backfires because it empties the wife's subjection to her husband of all its true freedom, freedom and power and beauty. It just takes it all out. When a wife can understand, there's that key word now, have you seen why I started out where I started out? Because we need understanding, this is something only Christians can get, that's why the world mocks this, they don't get it, they can't, it's impossible, they don't have the spirit, they're not new creations in Christ. When a wife can understand what it means, spiritual insight and perception, to fear her husband, then she will be freed and empowered to be subject to her husband. Yes, and to show him respect and honor and deference 
even when he himself is unworthy. A wife's fearing her husband has nothing to do with a husband's power to intimidate or to force subjection. That is not the nature of the husband's authority. And we'll see that. We'll come back to that later. It is not the husband who must see to it his wife is in subjection. That's not the nature of the husband's authority. Or that she fears him. Or that she fears God. It's the responsibility, wives, I would address you as Paul addressed the wives. It is the responsibility and calling only of the wife. She subjects herself to her husband in the fear of Christ as to the Lord. She subjects herself to her husband as one in whom she sees represented authority. And where does all authority, when you see it, where does it always take you to? When you see authority, where does it always take you to? There's only one authority, ultimately, and that's God. Her own Redeemer, her own Savior, her own covenant, Lord. Husbands, I want to turn to you briefly here. How can this calling of our wives, because wives, you know, the children don't want their parents listening in, right, when, when the children are told to obey your parents. Do the wives want their husbands listening in when they're being told? Well, I can tell you, think about it. I don't think there's a husband here who's happy to be hearing this. Uh, I know I, I have not been happy in any kind of a fleshly way to hear this. Because how can this calling... In a fleshly way. Now, in another way, it is good to hear because how can this calling of our wives not give to you and to the first half of verse 33 a more urgent and pressing meaning than it ever had before? And what does it say? Each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. So here's the question that encapsulates it for me. Husbands, Are you living as a husband always in the light of your wife's calling to fear you? We won't be able to be babies then. We won't be able to act like little kids, right? We won't be able to be lazy. In our flesh, in our flesh, in our flesh, We wish with all our hearts that our wives had no such calling. And so we ignore it as husbands. We pretend it's not their calling. At some level, we even subtly encourage our wives to ignore it themselves. We much prefer an equal partnership. A 50-50 romantic friendship. Where authority as we saw with parents and children. What is authority that the husband has? It's just a necessary evil. Held in reserve for those times when we have to make a decision and all agreement, all our attempts at agreement have been exhausted. And so now, oh, well, what are we going to do? Pull the authority out. That's the result of our spiritual laziness, husbands, and our spiritual disobedience. And yet, wives, we've seen this morning 
So I'm going I'm to unpack that more a little later. I'm not saying that husbands are always going around barking orders. That's ridiculous. I'm talking about authority is something deeper and fuller and more rich and beautiful and wonderful. And every, every godly wife and every really wife wants this in her husband. Not in the flesh. In the flesh, she doesn't. Right? No, no. But wives, we've seen this morning how even when a husband is being lazy and disobedient, you can still live in full subjection to your husband in the fear of Christ. And if I've talked to the husbands about their disobedience, I would simply say here that anything else is disobedience to God himself. Now, we saw at the beginning that subjecting ourselves to one another, to the God-ordained authorities in our lives, masters, parents, husbands, is one of the supernatural and, and I, we could add, in the sense, in their sphere, in their sphere, elders, um, and, and there's a sense then in which plurality of elders, elders are subject to elders, and, and there's other authorities in life, employers and all of that, but they all have their spheres. Husbands and, and parents, that sphere is very unique and special. So... Uh, subjection to these God-ordinate authorities is one of the supernatural fruits and therefore one of the signs that we are filled in the Spirit. Think about that. It's one of the ways that we live out experientially my growing in your handout. What's the word? You know it, right? Understanding. Understanding of our spiritual insight into, our perception of God's gracious saving will. And as I asked at the beginning, I'll ask at the end, what does this subjection have to do with God's gracious saving will? The answer is found in these simple yet wonderfully loaded, loaded, loaded words. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. The wife must see to it that she fears her husband. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would grant to us the understanding to perceive the beauty and goodness, to have insight into the rightness and the freedom of your ways. I pray, we pray that, first of all, we have hearts that desire to be subject to the only true and ultimate authority that there is in the universe, and that is yours. So when we see authority elsewhere, Lord, help us always to have that sense of, of a fear and trembling Because we have come to fear and tremble before you. Lord, I pray for all of those in authority, whether fathers or mothers or husbands or other kinds of authority that we as Christians may be placed in positions of that you would would enable us as we hear the calling that is placed on those under authority. 
enable us to tremble in our own in our own right to love in humility to sacrifice to serve to be diligent in leading to be wise in seeking you and lord in all of this may there be beautiful god honoring joyful marriages and and and, and families and relationships between parents and children and and we also pray, Lord, that as we acknowledge we live in a, in a broken world and we ourselves are fallen and sinful, so this ideal is so difficult for us sometimes to achieve because of our flesh. And so we need to be filled in the Spirit. This is a supernatural work, only possible for those who have been born anew through the life-giving power of, of the Spirit of God. So Lord, help us to rejoice as we see ourselves subjecting and working this out experientially in our lives. Help us to rejoice as we see what it means about the work you have done in us and are doing in us and will complete at the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for for the songs we can sing now, for the supper that we can take, which reminds us that the one we tremble before ultimately is also the one in whom we trust and to whom we have fled and flee daily for refuge, for comfort, for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.